Hello, and welcome to A View from the Perch, a podcast covering important financial topics from the perspective of two certified financial planners. Each week, we give a brief market update, discuss current economic events, and provide education on a financial subject. Now, here are your hosts, Bill Parrott and Spencer Mulcahy. All right, Bill, new week, same question. How are the markets? Markets are good. The Standard & Poor 500 index is up 1.21%. Small cap stocks are down 0.13% to push. International stocks up 0.54%. And bonds rallying again at 1.56%. Hmm. What what news is a bond rallying for? It's pure math. Pure Rate, math. Rates uh, are coming down. Now, when I say rates are coming down, they actually rose quite significantly the last couple of weeks. Yeah. Uh, so when I say they're coming down, it's actually from a higher level. Mm. Uh, but they are declining. But it's like day to day. So yeah. it's, it's not like we could say the trend is in with lower rates, but uh, last week, the 10-year treasury spiked quite a bit. And uh, this year, or this year, this week, it's pulling back a little bit. The rate's coming down. So again, with bonds, it's just pure math. <laughs> rates up, bond prices down. Rates down, bond prices up. And as we are seeing at the beginning of the week, it seemed as if stocks were kind of lagging, and now it seems they're gonna a vicious cycle upward, kind of what's causing that. Well, what do you think? Probably NVIDIA. <laughs> yeah, it, uh, it's the bellwether right now. Uh, it's having a good day today. And uh, and just earnings report, I think, in general, been mm-hmm. pretty decent for the yeah. most part. Um, but yeah, NVIDIA today is, 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 is helping. Um, there's so much hype around that stock and everybody owns it. Mm-hmm. And price targets are going crazy. Uh, it's in every single mutual fund that we own, probably. Uh, so thankfully, they they beat earnings. Yeah. Because if they didn't beat earnings, you know, who knows? Yeah. 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 So and then just any slowdown you're seeing or is it just kind of status quo from August and September? Um, yeah, the slowdown, I would just say is seasonal. Okay. Uh, We'll see what happens after Labor Day once people are, are you know, that's officially the end of summer, uh, even though schools are back yeah. in, as you could tell by the traffic. <laughs> uh, but after Labor Day, we'll get a better idea of really what's going on. Um, the markets are probably muted today because of Jackson Hole. Mm-hmm. Uh, Fed Powell speaking later today. And Wall Street's going to dissect every word, every syllable, yeah. every pause. Eye movements, yeah. <laughs> posture, you name it. Uh, so the market might have some reaction today, but he's very good. Powell is very good at at uh, kind of protecting his words to yes. not rattle the market. But the Jackson Hole is going to be in focus today. But got a few weeks to go in August, um, or a couple weeks, week and a half. Yeah, um, in Labor Day. So we'll see after Labor Day what what really I think is going on with market sentiment. Makes sense. And so just another kind of wait and hold period um, until we see what Powell says and then kind of after Labor Day seeing what uh, 
the end of the year is going to look like? Yeah, you know, uh, there's really not a catalyst to do much right now because most people's accounts are performing mm-hmm. well. Uh, you got decent interest rates at banks. Well, not well, CDs and treasuries. So I don't, I don't anticipate much movement really anywhere. Um, again, I don't think we're in a bubble like we've talked about yeah. before. And, uh, so yeah, I think, uh, all systems go right now. Yeah. I know. I think that's a great segue into our empowering education. Thank you, Scott, for the recommendation. And yeah, this is, about- this is a big deal. This is our first client request yeah. podcast. So, Scott, if you're out there, this one's for this you. One's Thanks for, you. for the suggestion. <laughs> uh, yeah, so our first ever client-driven podcast. Yeah, yeah and it was very astute by Scott. He's, he wanted to know, Warren Buffett seems like he's on the sideline with about $147 billion in short-term U.S. Treasury. And also Michael Burry. Famous for a strategy in the global financial crisis or the great financial crisis, and more probably popular from his portrayal by Christian Bale in The Big Short. The Big Short. Um, he has now shorted the market as well at about a one point six billion dollars short. Yes. And Scott was asking, these two titans of industries are saying something. What does it mean? How do we decipher it? Yeah. So, kind of, how do we use what they're saying to give us? An understanding, but not necessarily destroy our whole mentality. Yeah. And and Michael Burry is a doctor, so we got to get that out True. there. Dr. Michael Burry. So it, it feels uh, weird doing a podcast attacking uh, two very successful <laughs> investors. Uh, one, obviously, the most successful investor of all time, and one who is very popular with the media. But let's, let's dissect those. Yeah those uh, holdings for a moment. So Skyon Asset Management is Michael Burry's company's hedge fund. So it's $111 billion strong. So he takes 1.6 billion of that and buys some puts. Mm. So that works out to about one and a half percent of his portfolio. So if you had $100,000 invested, you would take $1,500 out and buy some puts, which, you know, if you told your buddies, hey, about $1,500 in puts, they'd like, who cares? Yeah. So percentage wise, it's not that big of a deal. Mm. And is it a hedge or is it a market bet? Um, he, he thinks we're going to have the market of all crashes according yeah. to somebody else. So a one and a half percent position is not alarming. Mm. Uh, people are focusing on the dollar amount, not the percentage of his assets under management. Yeah. Let's look at Warren Buffett. So Warren Buffett, um, you, what figure did you use? 100, $147 yeah. billion. So I'm, I'm using $130 billion, which is a rounding error. Uh, but his market cap for Berkshire Hathaway is $775 billion. Mm. So his cash holding is around 17%. So again, if you had a $100,000 portfolio and you had 17,000 in treasuries, that's not that big of a deal. Mm. But let's look at that. And he's, Warren Buffett has bought treasuries forever. He's, He's one of the largest individual purchasers of treasuries on the planet. But right now with rates, he's probably generating six to six and a half billion dollars in interest 
for buying the safest investment yeah. in the world. So, gosh, I it's probably not a bad strategy. Also, Warren Buffett uses a baseball analogy a lot. He he says you don't have to do anything; just wait for your perfect pitch, and when it comes, hit it out of the park. So he's probably just waiting for the market to give him that opportunity to go in and buy something. But when you're worth billions of dollars, you know what do you you don't need to do anything. Yeah. So I think the media is focusing on the dollar amounts. Like these are big bets. Mm -hmm. And and I've had this beef with the media and billionaires for a long time. If a billionaire invests a few million million dollars into something, it makes news. Yeah. But they could it's like you taking a hundred dollars or five dollars or a thousand dollars and speculating on something. It it's a rounding error for mm -hmm. these people and almost doesn't make any material impact on their portfolios. So I'd like to go back to the Burry example for a second, because like you said, the news is portraying it. Hey, this is an AI bubble. Hey, it's going to be a huge drawback. Hey, this is why I'm doing this $1.6 million or billion dollars short. But then when you look at the grand scheme of things, that's a percent and a half of his total portfolio value. So how is it turning mountains into molehills? Is it twisting Burry's words, you think? Or you think he actually has this position? And if so, how is that uh, vindicated by his 1.5% pitch? Yeah, he actually owns it. It's a 13F filing. And, um, but it's a big dollar amount. Mm. And, and you know, when you put, you know, a billion plus into a strategy, people are like, oh, he must be convinced the market's going to fall. Yeah. Um, and, you know, he might, but again, taking one and a half percent of your portfolio and speculating, yeah. not that big of a deal. We usually encourage people when they ask about speculation, say, hey, limit it to three to five percent of your portfolio. Mm -hmm. Knock yourself out. If, if it works, you're going to make a lot of money. If it doesn't work, it's not going to bring down the house. Yeah. So if he loses 100 percent of this position, he still has another one hundred nine billion dollars. Yeah. To invest. So it's not, in my opinion, material to his overall mm. strategy. Uh, but again, when you are uh, a market seer, you are the focus of a Michael Lewis book. Yeah. You are portrayed by Christian Bale <laughs> in the big short. What you say carries a lot of weight. Well, yeah, and we haven't even gotten to his Reddit kind of um, example because he was a huge proponent of GameStop before that took off and the Reddit craze just really was like, oh, Michael Burry's talking GameStop. He has a short interest in it and that kind of just flew up that way. So, yeah, yeah he, he's very influential. And so I very. think that's the part that I really is touching some people. And instead of them going, okay, let me take 1.5% of my portfolio and speculate, they're saying, Michael Burry's saying, the market's going to crash. I'm taking all my money and moving it out. It's a big headline grabber. Michael Burry buys billions of dollars and puts the market's going to crash. Yeah. Maybe so. Um, but let, let's let's go down a little bit more than that. Uh, earlier this year, I think in February, he said sell the market. Yes. And then in in uh, March, he, he tweeted or X'd. X'd, yeah. <laughs> he tweeted, uh, I was wrong to say sell. Yeah. And so he's had these call before. Um, and he's certainly famous for the big short. He made a lot of money, 100 million plus shorting the market and good for him. Mm -hmm. But uh, let's say you as an investor 
put all your money into the stock market on October 20th, 2007. Market's doing yeah. well. But then a few days later, the great financial crisis starts. Mm-hmm. So from 2007, October of 2007 to March 2009, the market loses 53%. Ooh. So you made the worst investment decision of your life. You invested all your life savings three to four days before the market starts to correct. Mm-hmm. So how do you think your portfolio is doing today? I think it's doing completely fine. It's completely fine. (laughs) So since that day, you're up 305% on your investment. Even with the 53% cutback. Even with the 53% correction, even with last year's market crash, even with the COVID correction, even with the 2018 pullback. Mm. And you've been averaging nine and a quarter percent per year. Yeah. So you invested arguably the worst time this century and you're still averaging nine and a quarter percent. Mm. So did his call mean anything? I, I don't know. But if you had never heard of him and you just landed on the planet today and you look back and, oh, I made 300 percent, you're pretty happy. Yeah, I think that's just a great point of having a financial plan and then kind of investment philosophy and sticking with it because that's really how Good investments and time is how you make your money in this. And I I do believe people get caught up with these headlines and they get excited. They're like, oh, Christian Bale made a bunch of money. But that's not really your investor strategy because most people, when they hear this, they just take their money. They don't buy puts or speculative assets. I hope not, because if you're using your entire portfolio to do that, that gets you into a lot of um, liability. But yeah, and that's what we always talk about, buy and hold. Market corrections are going to happen. We never said they're not going to happen. However, weather the storm and continue to well since two, since two thousand eight, since the great great financial crisis, the GFC, mm-hmm. we've had at least a ten percent correction or more in two thousand eleven, mm-hmm. two thousand fifteen, two thousand sixteen, two thousand eighteen, twenty twenty, and twenty twenty two. There's been, I think, five major corrections. Mm. So uh, the big one, obviously, is the Great Depression. Yeah. Can't argue with that one. Uh, The Arab oil embargo, 73 to 74, the market was down 40%. Uh, October 19th, 1987, the market crashed 22%. Mm -hmm. The tech wreck from 2000 to 2003, the market was down 43%. And the great financial crisis down 53%. So we'll say on average, about every 20 years, there's a correction or a crash. Now, somebody's going to say, well, we've had two this century, and we have, yeah. you know, the tech wreck and the great financial crisis, but uh, we're just getting them out early. Get them out of the way. <laughs> yeah. so, so when you hear somebody saying there's going to be a correction or a pullback, it's, it's not news because they happen all yeah. the time. Yeah. It's like saying, hey, Spencer, today there's going to be a traffic jam on I-35 somewhere between Mexico and Minnesota. That's not news. I mean, it's, it no. happens all the time. Yeah, but I think as, as an investor, we have this mentality like, I, I, I want to miss it, right? I, I want to miss those market corrections. I want to time it well. And 
they're inevitable, but timing it is much more difficult. So let me ask you a question. Happen. So now you have this news. Yeah. Warren Buffett has a lot of cash. Yeah. Michael Burry is short. What are you going to do? You Nothing. as the investor, what what are you going to do with that news? I'm going to, um, I'm going to mull it over and I'm going to think about it, but I just, I don't see any benefit in trying to time the market because you just, if you miss out on some of the best months, you're going to struggle mightily to get those returns. And it's just, and it normally the best months occur almost simultaneously quickly after a correction. So it's like, how am I going to guess right at timeout and then guess right when you get right back in? It seems impossible. Well, going back to the COVID correction that March, uh, on one day, the market was down about 12%. The very next day, it was up 12%. So good luck to you. Yeah. <laughs> but let's say you acted on this news. Yeah. You call us up, say, sell everything. Michael Burry just bought a bunch of puts. Warren Buffett's in cash. And we go to, and we sell everything. When do you get back in? That's a great question. When do you say, hey, it's over? My bet, like if you go back to the great financial crisis, people that sold and panicked probably waited years mm -hmm. to get back in. And they missed that run up from 2009, 2011, where the market almost went vertical. Yeah. And my guess, some people probably still aren't back in. And my guess from 09 to 11, there's probably thousands of news articles showing you why you shouldn't invest. Yeah, the market went straight up. And so I think if you look at the markets, <laughs> we're doing, we're getting some research we're getting here. Some research. Bear with us a second. <laughs> um, from 2009, so 2009, the market was up 26.5%. And then 2010 is up 15. So from 2009 to 2014, you were averaging over 17% a year on your investments. So those people that sold mm -hmm. missed out on that. But let me ask you another question. Do you remember Elaine Garzarelli? No. Does that name ring a bell to you at all? No. And it shouldn't to you because... Uh, <laughs> Prior to the stock market crash, October 19, 1987, she said the market's going to crash. Mm. And it did. So she was on every publication. She was on every TV show. Whenever she talked, the market moved. Interesting. And then she fizzled. She went out and started her own company. She was working at Shearson Lehman. And she was riding that wave of that one market call. She's a great analyst and, you know, kudos to her for calling her. But everybody listened to her every word. Whatever she said, the market did. But then eventually it did not. And then now she's a footnote to history. But she was the Michael Burry of the day. She called it correctly. It was a, it was a huge... Uh, media event mm. and again she was on like you could not pick up a financial publication without her picture on interesting or you couldn't read a research report that said elaine said yeah whatever so these again kudos to them for making the right mm -hmm. call but if you say it enough it it, it may happen
Yeah. Um, I don't, you can't follow just one person's advice. Yeah, no, I agree. And then I, I kind of want to touch about Warren Buffett's strategy a little bit more as well, give a little bit more clarity on that. So 70% is in treasuries. 17, 17, 17, 17% yeah. are in treasuries and it's yielding above five. And Warren Buffett being a value investor, like you talked about the analogy of waiting for the perfect pitch. We have a lot of clients right now that are in short term treasuries. So I guess the question is, what is the perfect pitch? How do you know that? How do you jump back in? Well, he has certain metrics that he's mm-hmm. looking at, but uh, it'll be... It'll be during a correction. Yeah. It'll be the time when no one wants to invest. It'll be horrific. It'll be headline news. Mm-hmm. The market's down, you know, pick a percentage, 10, 15, 20, 50%. It'll be the worst time ever to go into the market. He'll ever. Jump right in. He'll say, hey, thank you very much. I'm going to buy you and you and you and you. And that's why he's worth billions of dollars. Mm-hmm. He just... He's collecting six and a half billion dollars in interest. Yeah. Waiting, waiting, waiting. People panic. He goes in, he'll pick up a company on the cheap and then write it back up. And uh, so if you go back and look at, uh, we'll say June of last year, market was down significantly. We had a few clients capitulate and sell, panic, uh, even though we said don't, uh, it's their money. And if instead they had bought the stock market, they would be up double digits today. And you can go back during COVID. You know, if you had bought stocks during that March of 20, you made a mint. Mm. If you bought stocks in 2018, 87, 73, that, that, that's when you know it's, it's, well, let me say it another way. Uh, the perfect pitch is inversely related to your emotions. There it is. <laughs> <laughs> so if you are on the floor in a fetal position, worrying about your stocks, that's probably the time to buy. Yeah. No, that, may, that makes total sense. So, yeah, all this information, we talked about it for a little bit. Kind of what would you boil it down to in a sentence or two? Gosh, here we go again. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, stay invested, diversify your assets. Yeah. And again, if you go back to October of 07 and you you put all your life savings mm-hmm. in the stock market, you were down, you, you lost half your investment yeah. you know, a few months later. And it, but if you stayed with it today, you made a lot of money. So time, like you mentioned, is your friend. Diversify your assets and and really don't worry about what the market's going to do. Yeah, I think that's that's an extremely powerful analogy. What it was a couple days before the great financial crisis. And yeah. now it's up 353%. 305%. Ooh. So you... And what's the long-term historical average for stocks? Ten percent. So you've averaged nine and a quarter percent since two thousand and seven, and um, and that's prior to the one of the worst corrections that we've had since wow. the Great Depression. That's why they call it the Great Financial Crisis yeah. because it it's. The Great Depression is is in the pole position, mm-hmm. and the Great Financial Crisis is right behind it. It's yep. one and one A. But if you put all your money in prior to that, you're still up significantly. 
Yeah, and that's not our opinion. Math doesn't lie. That's just the Math black and white lie. of it. Um, perfect. Well, appreciate that. I think that was very beneficial. Again, thank you, Scott, for the thank recommendation. You, um, let's transition to our intriguing issue. What do you got for us this week? I think we might have the same one. I don't think so. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm going to go with the Russian plane crash mm-hmm. with Prigozhin on it, uh, the Wagner leader. Uh, I don't think anybody's surprised that he he died. No. Uh, when you when you uh, institute a coup against Putin, you know your time is is limited. Uh, so was it an accident? Uh, some people say it was shot down. Uh, it, how it fell? How it they fell. said it was either a missile or a bomb on the plane. They don't know which. One, but that's the two kind of leading theories. Yeah, so that that news was shocking yesterday, but uh, no, I think we even talked about it. Yeah, that it was not a matter of if, but when. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, you know, kind of sad news that that one person Putin can. Now the Kremlin hasn't said anything, mm. but I don't think you have to be a rocket scientist to connect the dots yeah and that was i mean that was the sad part is so apparently he was in africa uh like a week ago and for some reason he came back to russia and for some reason he got on the plan nobody knows why yeah um and then this tragedy happens uh and i was talking with my wife and she's like well who's he gonna answer to he doesn't answer anybody he can do whatever he wants and so it's just that's kind of the well, we know who he's going to answer to one day. Yeah, one day. Exactly. That's the futility of it, which it's, it's just sad. But um, yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, that the news. Video is insane. Yes, it is. So, uh, and I think it's on the anniversary of something. Because uh, my wife was saying that Putin likes to do things on anniversaries. Uh, and uh, so I, I don't know what the anniversary was. But yeah, uh, shocking, but not surprising news. Yeah. Yeah. Well, perfect. Mine is uh, kind of in the same vein. We're talking about the ice rush that's going on. Ice rush? Ice rush. So uh, about the heck is that? five years ago or, or 10, I forget which. Like you're talking like ice cubes? Talking ice. And you think it's okay. not important, but they found a whole bunch of ice on the bottom of the moon. So the South Pole of the moon. Yes. And that is everybody's like, who cares? It's just water. It's actually extremely important because to transport 16 fluid ounces from here to the moon, it costs about $10,000 every 16 fluid ounces. Yeah. And now they have a mass amount that they don't have to transport that they can mine from the bottom of the moon or the south pole of the moon. Well, how do they get it here? Well, they don't need to. So that's the big thing. They want to create stations for it to be kind of this um, checkpoint to Mars because we can't make... Uh, a flight from here to Mars, but they think they're going to be able to do it with the moon if they have a pit stop and then also creating things on the moon. So it's not for Earth's purposes, mm. for Mars. It's for space exploration purposes. Yeah. And that's not even the crazy part. Well, can we give a shout out to India for... I was about to talk oh, about go ahead. Yeah, yeah. So Russia sent the first uncrewed missile. They failed. And they landed. Well, they landed. They failed. <laughs> it, was, it was obliterated. But this was the first time since 1973 that somebody's trying to land something on the moon and then India has their flight here in the next couple of weeks as well. Well they landed. They, oh, landed. they landed? Yeah. I didn't see that. Yeah. So they're the first country ever to land on the south side of the moon. Do they have a crew? No, no, no. Okay. No. And uh it's they're only the fourth country to put something on the moon. Yeah. But uh yeah, Russian failed. 
and India succeeded. Exactly. Yeah. And the craziest part is I was actually in a congressional hearing ways back and SpaceX came and talked about to our Congress, like, hey, if we land here, what's the protocol? Who gets the land? How does it work? Mm-hmm. And all the Congress people said was, we don't know. We'll figure it out when we get there. So he, the SpaceX um, employee was like, well, this is just going to be the gold rush of space. That's what they said about Alaska. Because Alaska eventually, because Russia owned Alaska. Yeah. America bought it. And, and the politicians were like, what for? There's nothing out there. Exactly. But there was. And there's a bunch of oil. And the thing about it, it's always been known that like space is very cooperative. But a lot of these space regimes from the world have been falling apart. So there's not a lot of cooperation. There's a lot of people fending for this this ice on the moon. So a lot of people are thinking there might be some warfare. There might be some battling to get to this ice rush. And then even more so, people think that there might be bandits up there. And then like, so it's legitimately going to be the why wild do, west. Why don't the they attack Iceland? What do you mean? Well, there's ice there. Again, <laughs> We're talking about ice on the moon, and it costs so much money to get. Yeah, but there's ice the here, so why not? And we can make ice, but it's not. We don't need it here. We need it in the moon to create because they can create rocket fuel water from here. Yeah, absolutely. But people are. I thought you were going to say they're creating these man-made rain clouds that we could use here. No, they're never. Uh, it's never in our best interest. They're trying to get further out in space and exploration, and so that's yeah. what. That's what everybody's very interested But if you land out in the north side of the moon, how are you going to get to the south side to get your ice? That's the question. So whoever gets to the south first and conquers that land, do they legally own it? And if so, how do you keep people from poaching your ice? So right now it's it's uh, India's. Which is crazy. Technically, yeah. Does India have any ice anywhere? I don't know. Probably don't. Do they? I think they're in the they Himalayas. Yeah, maybe, yeah. <laughs> but... Uh, well, okay. So uh, <laughs> you're taking this as way too practical. This is just a, a crazy thing that I think is going to unfold in about 30 years when we're having people starting to get into physical conflicts over. Do you, do you think there will be a Mars mission within the next 30 years? Yeah, I do. Um, and I think this is the first step to it. But it could be set back because of this uncooperative nature that we're seeing now. Um, now, how do you monetize it? I don't understand. So I don't understand SpaceX. And that would be an ice band. It sounds kind of cool. It's pretty awesome, right? Yeah. You're just living in the moon and just stealing Waiting. ice from people. Uh, well, how large is it? It's like the field, like the ice field. Or it's the entire southern pole of the moon. And I don't know the dimensions of the moon, but it's it's significant enough to be. Now, we talked about rocket scientists earlier. I'm not a rock. My, my uncle's a rocket scientist, but mm-hmm. uh, does the south side ever get sun? I don't know. I don't know either. Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, but it's just, it's a new wrinkle that we didn't ever think would be available. But now it seems as if countries are. So that's literally the definition of a moonshot. A moonshot. Yeah, that's true. That's very very true. (laughs) All right, Bill, what do you want to leave our listeners with? Oh, gosh. Uh, I don't want to say the same thing of diversify your assets, stay invested. So uh, I'm going to say if you want to speculate, limit it to 3 to 5% of your assets. If you want to follow Michael Burry down this put hole, 
hey, knock yourself out. Three to five percent. Three to five percent. All right, thank you. Thanks for joining us this week. Make sure to visit our website, parrotwealth.com, where you can learn more about everything we have to offer at Parrot Wealth Management. That's our view from the perch. See y'all next week.